You turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. And as we survey John's gospel, the record of Jesus' life, we find the pace is picking up. Uh, Things are ugly behind the scenes. We have already seen that there is a plot to kill Jesus and a plot to kill Lazarus, the man that Jesus raised from the dead. That plot is now gathering pace, and alongside the plot to kill him that's gathering pace, so the actual overall plot in the sense of the storyline is beginning to move towards its conclusion. We're all familiar, aren't we, with uh, the treacherous nature of popularity. A bright young politician that swept to power in a wave of public euphoria is just as likely to leave power some years later, a caricature of his former self, parodied in the media, vilified in the press, ostracized by his supporters. And that same reversal of fortunes, of course, can happen to once iconic sports personalities or film stars or business leaders. Popularity of any kind is a dangerously volatile commodity. And it's so at very least at that level, at that very human level, things are turning sour. Although, as we're going to see this evening, on the surface, that is not so apparent. The Jews of Jesus' day had had a little history in the past couple of hundred years of false messiahs turning up on their doorstep. People who claimed to be the Messiah. People who were either self-deceived or self-promoting. So there was nothing unusual about another messianic claimant. And yet there was. For as Jesus comes in the minds of those who came to see him this day, as the crowds gather to welcome him into the city, there is this climactic miracle that John has recorded here, this miracle of raising a man from the dead in a very public spectacle within two miles of Jerusalem itself and before many of the highest and best-known characters in the city of Jerusalem. And so we come to the the passage we're looking at today, and you'll notice, will you, the emphasis on a large crowd in verse 9, and again in verse 12, a large crowd. And in fact, the conclusion at the end of verse 19 is that the crowd is so large, the authorities are looking at it, feeling threatened, and saying, look, the world has gone out after him. And so the crowd really dominates the passage. What the crowd did, what the crowd believed, what the crowd missed. What the crowd did. Look at verse 12. The next day, that is the day after the feast or the dinner party that we read about earlier in the chapter. The next day, In the context of the resuscitation of Lazarus and the anointing of Jesus by Mary, that idea of anointing should be in your mind because the word anointing, of course, is part of the meaning of the word Messiah or Christ. He is the anointed one. And news about this anointing 
as well as the resurrection of Lazarus, is spilling around all over the place. Jesus has been anointed. They will, that will not have escaped people's notice. Its significance would not have missed them. And so it's the next day, after the anointing of Jesus, by Mary at the feast. John wants us to, out, to understand right at the very outset the context in which this event is taking place. The plot to get rid of him is moving forward and now at the center of the plot. Do you notice in verse 9? Not only do they want to get rid of Jesus, but they want to get rid of this man who is walking around as a kind of living advertisement for Jesus. A living, walking, breathing proof of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah because here is a dead man Four days dead, in his tomb, decomposing, and he is now alive. And the crowds of people are being swept along, we're told, by a a, a kind of euphoria of popular support for Jesus. A large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there and came, not only on account of him, but to see Lazarus. They wanted to see Lazarus. This man who was dead and was now alive. And they had come, verse 12, we're told, this large crowd had come to the feast. You'll remember, the feast is the Passover. This is the crucial Passover. It's been signaled from the very beginning of John's gospel when Jesus was identified as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. This is now the Passover. And the crowds come out to meet him as he comes towards the city. Now, we're told two things about the crowds. We're told about their waves and their words. Their waves in the sense of what they were waving. They were waving palm branches in their hands. Palm branches were familiar in the Greco-Roman world of the period. They were a symbol of victory in the, to the public at large. But in Israel, particularly, the palm branch had come to mean be a kind of nationalistic symbol. Because uh, during the period between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and the New Testament, the arrival of Jesus on the scene, uh, the people in Israel had been under the authority for a while of the uh, Greek Empire uh, led by Alexander the Great. After Alexander's death, it had been divided into various uh, groups and about four parts. And in the second century BC, the emperor Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the leader of the Greek Seleucid Empire, had come and he'd come into the temple and he had uh, raped, desecrated the temple of God and in reaction, a Jew, a man called Mattathias, determined to rescue Israel from her invaders. And he came and he led a guerrilla army. He fought against the Greeks. He died in the battle. And when he died in the battle, another man called Judas Maccabeus, very famous for having some music written about him by George Frederick Handel. Uh, uh, Judas didn't know about that. Of course, he missed out on the music, but the music is really very good. Maccabeus, whose name means the hammer, had become a folk hero, uh, like Robin Hood, 
He wreaked havoc on the occupying forces, so much so that by the year 164 BC, they released the temple back to the Jews so that they could use it for their own faith. And that event is still celebrated by Jews as the Feast of Lights, the De Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah as we know it today. Well, later, Judas Maccabeus drove the Greeks out of Jerusalem altogether. There was a brief period in which they were free, and there was a great celebration with lots of music and the waving of palm branches, a symbol of victory, so much so that later on after Jesus' time in the year 60 AD, when uh, the Jews again revolted against the Romans this time, they minted a coin, and on the coin was the image of a palm branch as a symbol of their national resurgence. Now, you didn't want to know all that, but I just gave you that anyway, so that you knew there was a bit of background. And it's really, the, the background is nationalism. It's national identity with an association with royalty, of course. But that is, that's what's on their mind. You need to keep that in your mind. It is national identity, national loyalty. It, it, it's a, they're trying to, as it were, put one in the eye of the Romans who are watching on as Jesus comes riding in to their city. But of course, more important than their waves are their words. And look at their words. Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Their words were misguided, but alongside their waves, their words are packed with significance. What does that word Hosanna mean? Well, that's what it says in English, so let's go back to the Greek. You go back to the Greek, what do you find where this word is? You find the word Hosanna. The Greeks couldn't translate it either. So they just took the word. Uh, they took the word from the Hebrew. You go back to the Hebrew. What does it say in the Hebrew? It says, Hosanna. So what does Hosanna mean? The English don't know. The Greeks don't know. We have to go back to the Hebrews and say, do you know what it means? Where did these people who are shouting this know what it meant? And the word itself means, save now. Save now, rescue us now. Hosanna. And uh, you'll find that phrase in Psalm 118. In fact, that is on their mind as they come. It's part of a group of psalms called the Hallel Psalms, 113 through 118. And 118 seems to be in a prophetic psalm in which the psalmist speaks words given to him by the Spirit, forming a script for this drama, the drama of this moment. And I want to take a moment just to, to read from Psalm 118, and I want you to, to kind of see that what you have there is the script for this event. You have the Messiah, first of all, the voice of the Messiah, and as he comes to the city, he's saying in the words of the psalmist, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter. And he says to God, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that Jesus quotes that, doesn't he, about himself. Those are the words of Jesus, as it were. And he uses that script later on 
in his ministry, the voice of the Messiah. And listen to the voice of the people in Psalm 118. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna, we pray. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. And here's another phrase they use. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Do you see? Psalm 118, in a sense, gives the script for the day. These people unknowingly, unwittingly, are following the divine script. They're, they're walking in the path that has been predetermined for them. They're doing it freely. They're doing it of their own will. They can't help it because they're Jews, and these words are in their minds. They use the right words for the right occasion as Jesus comes riding into town. Save us. And that great cry is used by them to celebrate in that psalm the triumph of the Messiah over his enemies as he experiences God's deliverance and God's rescue. And there are those words that Jesus uses himself, of himself. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the end time prophet. He is the Messiah. And as he comes, the crowds that wait for him follow that pre-planned script written by the Spirit. They wanted a king. Uh, they wanted the king of Israel. They wanted the leader that would rid them once and for all of the dreaded Romans. And that was what the authorities feared. They'd always have feared this. They'd always feared an uprising that would provoke the Romans into violent reaction. And by the way, there is the note of authenticity here because interestingly, when the Jews were speaking about themselves, they called themselves the people of Israel and they called their king the king of Israel. But the Jews, uh, the Romans rather, always referred to them as Jews, and they referred to their messianic pretensions uh, in terms of the king of the Jews, so that when they crucified Jesus, they called him not the king of Israel, but the king of the Jews. That's what the Romans would do. It's not what the Jews would have done, but it's what the Romans would have done. And so there's that kind of historical accuracy right in there for you to note in passing. Well, by this time, this theologically loaded language had become simply an excited to the people, an excited shout of praise, a kind of spontaneous ovation without too much thought, an enthusiastic greeting. In other words, the theology of it was lost. It was just the kind of language you would use. And so they were swept up in this wave of public popularity of Jesus. The signs and wonders, we're told, were really on their mind, and they were prepared to receive him into their city, not as the Messiah he wanted to be, but as the king they wanted him to be. And do you know throughout the history of Christianity, in fact, even in our own lives, there is a fickleness, there is a tendency to want Jesus to fit our bill, to be what we want him to be, to create Jesus in our image, 
to have Jesus dance to our tune. And so some dictators over the years have used the church and they've used the name of Jesus as a way of unifying and galvanizing their people behind them and as a way of uh, creating a kind of distorted moral authority for their own actions, evil actions. And some religious hucksters have used Jesus' name and reputation as a means of fleecing the saints of their hard-earned cash and building themselves mega mansions in Texas. Evil men have sometimes entered the priesthood or the ministry as a disguise for their base behavior. This has happened all throughout history. And there are people today who want Jesus to be the one who delivers, delivers the classic amazing experience. They come to churches and they say, I want to have an experience. I want my soul to be ravished by an experience. And Jesus, will you deliver that? And if he doesn't, they go away disillusioned. Others go to churches and they want Jesus to meet their financial needs or for Jesus to make them better. And when he doesn't make them better and doesn't give them a billion dollars in the bank, they become disillusioned and off they go. They want a Jesus to meet their demands. That's what these people were doing. They wanted a Jesus to fit their picture. And they greeted him enthusiastically. Well, that's what the crowd did. What did the crowd believe? Well, we're told in verse 11 that many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. But in verse 18, we're told what it was they believed. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. That is the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. It was the sign that bred resentment in the heart of the Pharisees. They were afraid that if Jesus became too popular, the wrath of, uh, of the Romans would come down upon their heads. They were really interested in self-preservation. We know that. We've already heard their, their plot. If this man gets too big, one man has got to die for the people. We're prepared, we're prepared to sacrifice Jesus so that we can keep our place and our palace and our temple and our people and our security and all will be well. All will be well. And that isn't a million miles away from us today either. There are churches today that are prepared to sell out Jesus' message in order to preserve themselves and their influence in the society intact. There are famous churches, mega churches, that have done that in the last year. They have done this very thing. They have capitulated morally and have, have followed the, the course of the world and in doing so have actually brought disgrace upon the Lord Jesus. But they've done it. Why? So that they keep their numbers and their income and their profile and their influence and their reputation in the community. They've been quite open about it. Quite, you, you can read their blurb. They're quite manifestly open about these things. These people came, and the Pharisees, the Pharisees are concerned that Jesus will lose them everything that they've built up. And the crowds are motivated 
by the sense of wonder they had that Jesus had done this sign. Now, the evangelist, John, suggests that the reason they went out to meet him was on account of the resurrection of Lazarus. The crowd that had been with him called Lazarus, had seen him call Lazarus out of the tomb and raise him from the dead continued to talk about it. They were discussing it all over the place. It was being buzzed abroad, and they'd heard what Jesus had done. So here is Israel, represented by these crowds in Jerusalem, and they are welcoming their Messiah. You see the language they use is the language of Psalm 118, as we've seen. They are welcoming Jesus as a Messiah figure. But they, and they're claiming him, they're claiming him as king. They're saying, blessed is the what king that comes in the name of the Lord. But you see, what they believe about him is inadequate. What they believe about him is not who he is and why he has come. They are moved by this great undeniable sign that Jesus has performed. They see Jesus as their get-out-of-the-grave-free card. I mean, who's not going to vote for Jesus if you can do that kind of thing? So what the crowd believed, you see, demonstrates where their heart lay. Thirdly, what the crowd missed. John's been presenting Jesus as a great sign-working, God-sent Messiah, And this ultimate sign of raising the dead has destabilized, as we've seen, the religious leaders. The the crowds have come following him, and in doing so, they're fulfilling a number of scriptures. And we begin now in verse 14 to see what these scriptures are. It's been quite deliberate. Why did Jesus do this? Why has Jesus quite deliberately taken this action. We're told in the other Gospels that, that he had set it up. He, he had gotten this colt of a donkey. Uh, he had, he had uh, sent his disciples. He knew exactly where to find it. There had been an arrangement made. The donkey's fall was there. It had never been hidden. I mean, you have to try and imagine what it's like for a grown man to ride a donkey's fall. It is a ridiculous picture. Here is this mini thing. You're sitting, it's like a grown man trying to drive one of these English mini cars. You kind of have to fold yourself up in order to get into them. Uh, I'm I'm so glad that I don't have one of those things anymore. I have real cars. Real men drive American cars. So anyway... If you're riding a colt, let me just tell you, Jesus would have had to pull his feet up for them not to drag along the ground. It was not a very pretty sight. I mean, put out of your mind altogether the, the picture that I put on Facebook of me riding a horse in Wyoming. That looked magnificent. The horse did, I mean. looked magnificent. It was magnificent to ride that horse. It looked impressive. I looked impressive. I don't look impressive very much, but I did on that horse. But Jesus looks ridiculous on the fall of a donkey. It was a humiliating picture, even comical, depending on how you look at it. Well, why did he do it? Well, he did it to make a point. He was self-consciously, we're told in verse 14 and 15, self-consciously 
wanting to draw our attention to a messianic prophecy made by Zechariah, one of the prophets. Now let me just read from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, but having salvation. But that, you notice the language there of Psalm 118 that, we just, that I read to you earlier. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the fall of a donkey. Jesus is deliberately, you see, following the script written by Zechariah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because he is intentionally and deliberately demonstrating to these people that he is coming as a different kind of Messiah than what they expected. He has come in peace, not war. He's not riding on a charger. In the book of Revelation, at the end of history, when Jesus comes a second time, he is described there as riding on a white horse with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he comes then to make war and to bring judgment on the earth, but not this time. Here he comes in peace. The usual characteristics of power, arrogance, bullying, self-promotion are absent. There is lowliness, there is meekness, there is humility. In fact, he is described as righteous and having salvation, humble, humble. He's not only the one who comes with signs and wonders. He is the king of Israel, yes. But he rides this young donkey from Lazarus' house in Bethany. He rides it to the temple mount over the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, up the hill to Mount Zion. He rides, and the crowds gather. And it was a claim to royalty. You see, if you knew your Scripture, and these people were thoroughly aware of their Scripture, one of the earliest prophecies spoke about the offspring of the woman who would crush Satan. And this individual, in the beginning of Genesis, is at the end of Genesis given a further description. He'll be born of a woman, Genesis 3.15, and then in Genesis chapter 49, we're told something about this figure. He is going to be the king. In fact, he is going to be a ruler. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah. He will be a Jew. And listen to this. This is what it says. Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. The scepter, the sign of royal authority, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience of the peoples be, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Way back, Genesis 49, the donkey's colt is there. Zechariah, the donkey's colt is there. In the oldest royal prophecy of all in the Bible, the donkey's colt is there. Jesus is deliberately bringing the entire Old Testament together from Genesis to Zechariah. And the disciples tell us 
verse 16, they didn't see that at first. And they didn't put two and two together at the beginning. They saw all happen, but they, they weren't able to add it up or think of the verses that were, that were being fulfilled at that point. But they, they knew afterwards, they knew afterwards when they searched the Scriptures to see where all this came from, and Jesus opened their eyes to see with the, with the realities of Jesus' birth and death and resurrection and ascension, when they saw the Scriptures through that lens, suddenly it all became clear to them. When he rides on this donkey instead of a war horse, he's indicating the kind of king he's come to be. Not the warrior who will demolish and sack Rome, but he's the humble prince of peace. He's coming to make peace. He's coming to a rebel world that was going to kill him. He's coming to rebel people who dismiss him. He's coming to those who disregard him. But he comes in peace. He comes in peace to you this evening. You may not be a Christian. You may be antagonized by things Christians say and things Christians do. You may be antagonized by aspects of the Christian message. I understand that. So you're antagonistic towards him. Perhaps you're angry with him. Things have happened in your life. You've, you've prayed prayers for someone, and those prayers were not answered, and you're angry with Jesus. I want to say to you tonight, he comes as the Prince of Peace. He comes to make peace. He comes with the terms of peace. He comes to offer you peace and reconciliation. He wants that anger to be put to one side. He wants reconciliation with you, peace with you, and between you and God, his Father. When he comes a second time, there will be no peace. But today is the day when he comes to offer peace. Jesus comes on this first great day, triumphal entry day, to speak peace to the people. Of course, there's another scripture. We read it right at the beginning of our service tonight from Psalm 24, where the figure, the messianic figure, who is described as the Lord God, comes to the gates of the city and then the gate of the temple, and uh, the gates are thrown open. Who is this that comes? He's the King of glory. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord of hosts himself. Here is Jesus demonstrating not only is he coming as the messianic king, he is coming as Israel's God. God has come. God has turned up. God is entering his city. God is coming to his temple. And the people, we're told, understand there was something even more significant about this. The Pharisees, who apparently in this scenario as the religious leaders are always saying things more than they know. Remember, Gamaliel, who is the, uh, or the, 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 the high priest who has urged that they get rid of Jesus, has said the words, it's expedient that one man die for the people rather than that the people all die. In that one statement, he sums up the good news of the gospel. The one man Jesus died so that you and I don't have to die eternally. 
but he said more than he knew. He was, it was political expediency on his lips. It's gospel, good news in our minds as we hear it. Well, here are these people, the Pharisees, again, verse 19. And once again, they say more than they know. Look at what they say. Do you see? You're gaining nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. Well, they were only meaning the people of Jerusalem, and they were meaning the crowds that were flocking the way, but they say more than they knew. The world has gone out after them. How do I know that? Look at the next verse, 20. There were some Greeks, non-Jews, people from another part of the empire, and they came looking for Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus, they said. So here's the Lord Jesus then riding into his city. He's made every, taken every measure to ensure that his coming is public, that he, he has done so with great deliberation and care. He's followed the script of Scripture. He's coming boldly, delib deliberately, voluntarily, freely to die for his people. And although they don't realize it, they have welcomed him, the Jews, have welcomed him into their city as their Messiah. That's important, isn't it? They have publicly declared. They have publicly spoken. They have said as a group, this is the Messiah. And they have used Scripture to reinforce that reality, as they've said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Pilate would take them seriously. Pilate knew they'd sung that and said that when Jesus came riding in. That's why he had put on the cross, this is the King of the Jews. They could never say, oh, he wasn't the King of the Jews. Pilate could say to you said so. You said so. Crowds of you, masses of you said so the day he rode into town. Which only increases the judgment. Do you know if you say high and glorious and exalted things about Jesus, if you recite the creed, for example, and you say, that he is the Son of God. You sing these hymns that we sing, and in these hymns there are exalted statements about who Jesus is. What you're doing is, whether you know it or not, is that you are declaring and confessing that to the world. And should you, having declared it and confessed it, then go on to deny it, then you're taking your side with the crowd who later in the week, having cried to him, Hosanna, save us, cry out, Crucify him. Crucify him. So be warned. Do you know what you believe about Jesus? I don't mean do you get all gushy and warm and sentimental with a tear in your eye when you think of it. I mean, do you know what you believe about Jesus? And have you welcomed him into your heart and into your life? And if you have, and most of you have, then rejoice that he did come to Israel and he did come to save. He came to save his people from their sins. 
and a decisive step has been taken. There is no turning back now. And the cross is round the corner. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the loveliness of his life. We thank you for the humility that he who was by very nature God did not think it beneath his dignity to ride ridiculously on the back of the donkey's colt. And he who is by nature God did not find it beneath his dignity to listen to the cries of those people, knowing what was in their heart, knowing that really it was about the miracle, really it was about the signs and the wonders and what he could do for them, rather than who he was. That he, even though he knows our hearts, is pleased to come to us tonight by his word and by his spirit to make peace with us and to have us make peace with him, to surrender our arms that we raise against him and in our surrender find true freedom and the fullest joy. We pray that this will be so in his name. Amen.